0: Uh, One of my favorite TV shows as a boy was called Family Classics. Anybody remember Family Classics? A lot of you do. It aired on Sunday afternoons. I usually watched it after the Bears or the Cubs played. And it it was an old movie. Each week a different old classic black and white movie. And uh, the movie I'll never forget was called The Prince and the Pauper. It was based on Mark Twain's novel by that same name, The Prince and the Pauper, a story about two boys. It's set in the 16th century in jolly old England. Uh, Maybe the reason it was such a popular story for me is because it was about two boys about my age. And these two boys had been born on the same day and they looked almost alike, but one of them was named Tom and he was born in the London slums to a father who was abusive. And the other boy was Edward VI. He was the Prince of England. He was son to King Henry VIII. And one day Tom was hanging outside the castle gate and one of the guards was roughing him up. And and Edward happened to be returning to the castle and he saw this and he rescued Tom and he brought him inside and the two boys became instant best buddies. And Tom began to share with Edward what life was like outside the castle walls, what life was like on the real streets of London. And the whole thing intrigued Edward. So he he came up with an idea. He said, listen, we we look so much alike. Why don't you take my garments on you, these princely robes and whatnot, for a day? Pretend to be me. And I'll take your tattered clothes and I'll go out, I'll hit the streets of London and see what, what life is like out there. I won't ruin the rest of the story for you. You can rent it if you want. The Prince and the Pauper. But today we're celebrating a much bigger version of a similar story. It's about a prince. In fact, the Prince of Heaven. The Son of Almighty God who comes to earth as a pauper born in an obscure Middle Eastern village to a poor couple by the name of Mary and Joseph at the turn of the first century. The prince becomes a pauper. Let, let me read to you one, a one-verse summary of Jesus' birth, and you'll find this if you brought a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 1. Okay, John is one of five Gospels, five biography, short biographies about Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, John happened to be written by Jesus' best friend, uh, a guy who was an eyewitness to the events of Jesus' life. And if you're open to John chapter 1, this is a one verse summary of Jesus birth in Bethlehem written by John. It says, "The word became flesh. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth." Now, around Christ Community Church, whenever we read from the Bible, we like to thank God for revealing himself to us in this book. So I say, "This is the word of the Lord." Thank you, God. Now, this single verse, John 1 verse 14, tells us three amazing truths about the baby who was born in Bethlehem that very first Christmas. If you're following along in your program, you could kind of fill in the blanks as we go in that outline. Truth number one is this amazing truth is that Jesus is fully God. And John 1, verse 14, the verse I just, I just read to you, drives home this truth in several significant ways. Several expressions are used that point to Jesus' godness. The first is the expression, the word. The word became flesh. Now, this is kind of a strange name to give Jesus, isn't it? Why is he called the word? It sounds weird to our ears, that, that nickname, the word. Well, John's audience, his readership, was made up of two groups of people, and both groups would have seen great significance in this title, the word. One of the groups was Jewish. And so when Jews of that day, when they heard the word, they immediately thought of two significant ways in which God revealed himself during Old Testament times. One way was through creation. In fact, if you turn to the opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, the first uh, book of the Hebrew Bible, we read that God created the heavens and the earth by his word. God spoke and things came into existence, whether instantaneously or through a process that took millions of years. The point of the uh, uh, of the deal is God spoke his word, brought into existence stars and planets and people and animals and rivers and oceans and mountains, God's word, and his creation, which was brought into being by God's word, his creation reveals God to us. You look at what he's made and you learn something about God's majesty and his creativity and his power and his wisdom. The the second way in which God reveals himself to us, according to the, the Old Testament, is through the prophets Frequently, as you're reading through the Old Testament, you come across a phrase like, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, or the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The word. This is how God revealed himself with regard to specific details to people, not in general terms like creation, but when when God wanted to say something about who he is or what he expects of our lives, he revealed it through these spokespeople called prophets, the word. So when John's Jewish audience heard the word became flesh, they they knew that John was talking about God. You know, God who had revealed himself in creation, who had revealed himself through the prophets, is now revealing himself through this little baby laid in a manger in Bethlehem. What What about the other group? The non-Jewish, Greek, secular members of John's audience, what did they conclude when they heard John refer to Jesus as the word? Well, the Greek word for uh, the word in our verse here is logos, from which we get our English logic or reason. Back in the 6th century B.C., there was a a, a famous Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus, and Heraclitus taught that although the world seems confusing and chaotic, actually behind the world is reason. Behind the world is this cosmic force that holds everything together and gives meaning and significance to life. So John comes along in chapter 1, verse 14, and he goes, yep. Yep. And that word, that cosmic force, that God force, if you would, out there became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Talking about Jesus. So one of the ways in which John underscores Jesus' godness in this verse is through referring to him as the word. Now, there's a second way in which John points to Jesus' godness in verse 14. It's when he says that the word made his dwelling among us. He made his dwelling among us. It looks like a fairly unremarkable phrase to us, but again, in the original language, in the Greek language, it reads, he pitched his tent among us. You say, oh, what's going on here with this kind of rustic analogy, camping analogy, if you would? Is, Is this meant to draw attention to the fact that Jesus was born in a stable with animals? No. No, pitched his tent among us. Tent was a symbol in Old Testament times of the presence of God. You say, how did that come about? Well, before Solomon built this grandiose temple to God, God's people used to gather for worship in a tent. It's, It's a tent that... You know, the writer of Exodus, Moses, in the Old Testament, he gives explicit details about how this tent is to be constructed, what materials it's to be made of, what's to be included in the tent, what artifacts uh, in terms of altars and candelabras and, and so on, how big the tent is supposed to be, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide. It was called the tabernacle. This was the ancient Israelites' worship center. The tabernacle was sometimes referred to as the tent of meeting. Why tent of meeting? Well, because if you wanted to meet God, that's where you went. You went to the tabernacle. You went to this tent. So when John comes along and he says, the word became flesh and he pitched his tent among us, his audience is saying, his we're talking God. We're talking the presence of God. Third way in which John communicates uh, Jesus' Godness is when he says in the very last phrase of verse 14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. The word glory is another interesting and very important Bible word. It, it refers to the visible display of God's greatness. Glory is the visible display of God's greatness. For example in Old Testament times when God's people, uh, when they were freed from 400 years of slavery in Egypt and they made their way to the promised land. They came to the Red Sea. Remember this scene? If you've never read it in the Bible, you've probably seen the movie, right? They come to the Red Sea and there's no way to get across and Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them to recapture them and take them back to Egypt. And so they call out To God, and God splits the water in two, and they make their way across the Red Sea on dry ground. But when Pharaoh's army tries to follow them, God closes the sea over them, drowns the enemy army. And so when they get to the far shore, they break out into song. And the lyrics of the song go like this. Who is like you, God? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Glory is a God word. A God descriptor. When King Solomon builds a temple for God, the glory of God, Scripture says, comes to descend on the temple in the form of this dense cloud, so dense that nobody can even go into the temple for a while. It's the glory of God. When Jesus is born in Bethlehem, an angel choir breaks open the heavens And they begin to sing to a group of terrified shepherds outside of Bethlehem. And it says, Luke chapter 2, that the glory of the Lord shone around them. And these shepherds were terrified. Glory. Glory is a God descriptor. And John applies this word to Jesus. He says, we've seen his glory. John chapter 1, verse 14. John was an eyewitness of Jesus' glory. You know, John saw Jesus do things that that only God could do. You know, Jesus' miracles displayed his, his glory. You know, when you heal the sick, you open the eyes of the blind. You feed thousands of people with a little boy's lunch. You calm a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' miracles declared his glory. John saw it. He was there. Jesus' profound, profoundly wise teaching displayed God's glory. Jesus' perfect life displayed his glory. I mean, c- keep in mind that John traveled with Jesus for three years, every day of the week, 24 hours a day, and all he saw was a guy, a dude who's perfect in character. Think about that. The glory of God, John concludes. Yeah, Sue and I were out to a movie a couple of weeks ago. We went to see a beautiful day in the neighborhood about Mr. Rogers. It's a really excellent movie and it's written from the perspective of a hard bitten reporter. Based on a true story, a guy's a reporter for Esquire magazine and he's assigned Mr. Rogers to do a feature story, cover story on Mr. Rogers. So he's out to dig up some dirt because he's an investigative reporter. And of course it's hard to dig up dirt on Mr. Rogers, right? But he finally does manage to sit down and uh, with Mrs. Rogers, and she does say to him, hey, listen, Fred is no perfect human, let me tell you. And in fact, he sometimes has a volatile temper. Are you kidding me? Miss, Mr. Rogers? Not a perfect guy? A temper? How disillusioning. John was never disillusioned by Jesus. Hung out with him 24-7. Never. Perfect in character. So John concludes, we have seen his glory, the glory of God. This little baby uh, laid to rest in Bethlehem's manger, fully God. And by the way, if you want to get to know God, get to know Jesus. In fact, let let me challenge you with the thought that this would make a really good 2020 goal for you. Put it at the top of your list. I'd like to get to know Jesus this next year because in getting to know Jesus, you will get to know God. So the first amazing truth that comes out of John 1.14 is that Jesus is fully God. Second amazing truth is that Jesus is fully human. A quick trivia quiz here. What do the following five people have in common? Okay, I'll put their their pictures up here on the screen. Okay, top left is uh, Sergey Brin. Sergey is the co-founder of Google. Uh, Next to him is uh, Alex Trebek, the host of Jeopardy. Jeopardy. Some of you do admit to watching it. Uh, Then you got Liam Neeson, one of Hollywood's biggest action stars. And then there's Nikola Tesla. You you might not have recognized him, the famous inventor. And next to him is uh, Mila Kunis, the young actress from the 70s show and a variety of movies. What do they have in common? You give up? They're all naturalized American citizens, which means they didn't used to be Americans, but now they are. They didn't used to be Americans, but they became, they became Americans. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, the word God became flesh. In other words, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, up to that point in time, in fact, up to that point in eternity, Jesus had been God, only God. But in Bethlehem, without giving up any of his godness, Jesus became one of us. He became fully human. Now what is the significance of this truth? Let me note four things that Jesus' humanness tells us about Jesus. Okay, The first is that Jesus empathizes with our experiences. Okay, Christianity is like no other world religion in this regard. No other world religion has a God who's been where we've been who gets us because he's gone through the same stuff we've gone through. How has 2019 been for you? you know, Maybe it's been a year when uh, you had trouble making ends meet financially. Jesus gets that. He was born into poverty. He was laid in a manger as a bed. He grew up a blue-collar worker, never owned a home of his own. Maybe 2019 is a year where you endured family squabbles, family that didn't get along together, maybe sibling rivalry. Okay. Jesus' brothers mocked him. He gets it, gets what you're going through. Maybe this has been a year where your work, whatever you do for a living, has been exhausting. It's been trying. G- Jesus was a carpenter from the time he was apprenticed to his dad as a teenager till 30 years of age, probably 15, 20 years of work. You think along the line he ran into some cranky customers? I bet he did. Some people who were demanding. Some people who said, no, I don't want to pay that price. He knows what you experience in your work life. Maybe 2019 has been a year in which you've had some antagonist on your case making your life miserable. An ex-spouse or a boss or a teacher or a coach. Or Jesus had a whole entourage of antagonists following him around trying to make life impossible for him. Maybe this has been a year of loss for you. You lost a loved one. You know, I lost a dad in 2019. I lost a father-in-law. I lost my dog in 2019. You know, on Thanksgiving Eve, my dog died. House full of guests, and I was rushing her off to the animal hospital. Maybe you've gone through some loss. Jesus wept at the graveside of his good buddy Lazarus. Jesus gets it, friend. Maybe this has been a year where, try as you might to follow God, you faced some sort of tragedy that left you wondering, where is God in all this? Jesus led a perfect life and then was nailed to a cross, crying out, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, Whatever you've gone through, Jesus, in his humanity, he gets you. He understands, he empathizes what you're going through. The second truth that we learn from Jesus' humanity is that Jesus understands our temptations. Now, this may have never dawned on you before. Maybe you've just assumed that Jesus, because he's fully God, he sort of went through his life on earth deflecting temptations like you know, Captain America's shield deflects bullets, right? Yeah, yeah, Jesus would never be tempted with lust or with anger or materialism or drinking too much or whatever your temptation is. Wrong. He's been tempted in every way like we've been. In fact, theologians say that Jesus probably faced a more intense level of temptation than you and I will, will ever face. Why do they say that? Because when we face temptation, one of our go-tos to get relief is to give in, right? That's how you get relief from temptation. You just give into to it. And momentarily, you experience some relief. So let's say you're tempted to anger. And you're dealing with someone who's rather annoying but you're resisting the temptation to go off on them. And so you resist and resist, and it builds up and it builds up, and then finally you can't keep it in anymore. You let them have it. You give them a piece of your mind, and initially you feel so good about it. You feel relieved. Jesus never, ever, ever, ever gave in to a, a temptation of any sort, lust or greed or materialism or drinking or you name it, Never. Which is why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2, verse 18 says, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Whatever your struggle is today, whatever self destructive habit may be at work in your life, Jesus gets it. Third truth that Jesus' humanity teaches us is that he can serve as our example, he can serve as our, our role model, our mentor. I mean, if you like to play golf, how would you like to learn golf from Tiger Woods? You know, if you're a musician, how would you like to learn cello from Yo-Yo Ma or cooking from Rachel Ray or computers from Bill Gates or leadership from Jim Collins? We have the opportunity, friends, to learn life, to learn life from the God-man Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus can show us how to live. Jesus can show us how to respond to our critics. He can show us how to honor our parents. He can show us how to show compassion to the poor. Jesus can show us how to lead a team, how to teach a crowd, how to pray and get results, how to persevere in stressful situations because Jesus has done all these things in the best possible way. Some years ago, it was popular to wear a wristband that had four letters on it, WWJD. What would Jesus do? That's still a good question to ask ourselves. What would this mentor, this role model, what would he do? Because he's fully human. He's the perfect example. Just another good reason to get to know Jesus better in 2020, get to know him as your mentor, as your life coach. Fourth truth that Jesus' humanity teaches us is that he's able to die as our representative See, from the moment of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, he was headed toward an intentional death on the cross. In fact, in Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus, speaking of himself, says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life. Jesus was born on Christmas Day so that he could die on Good Friday. Now, I'll explain why he had to die in just a moment, but right now the the only point I want to make is that Jesus could not have died if he'd remained only God because God doesn't die. People die, and since Jesus was bent on dying, since that was his mission in life, he had come to die, to lay down his life, he had to become one of us. So the baby born in Bethlehem's manger is fully God, fully human. Here's a third truth. He's fully savior. Now go back to John 1:14 1, one last time. Look at the closing phrase of this verse. It says that the word who became flesh is full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. This is a great combination. Grace and truth. Let me start with truth. You know, Jesus brings us not only the truth about God, a point I've already made, but Jesus teaches us the truth about ourselves. And it's not a pretty picture. You know, on one occasion, Jesus says that he's the light who's come into the world, but people don't care for him because they prefer to remain in their darkness with their dark thoughts and their dark words and their dark actions. Romans 3 verse 23 puts it this way. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the sad truth about his friends. God has a standard, and we all fall miserably short of that standard. And and the bad news gets worse. A couple chapters later in Romans, Romans 6, 23, he says, and the wages of sin, the payment, the consequence for sin is death. say, why death? Well, because God is the source of life. And when we go our way instead of God's way, when God says, do this, and we, we don't do it, when God says, don't do this, and that's the exact thing we do, when we sit on the throne of our lives, running our own lives, instead of letting God run our lives, we, we pull apart, we disconnect from the giver of life. And when you disconnect from life, the penalty is death. You die. You die. And the Bible describes it, first of all, as spiritual death, death on the inside, soul death, a broken relationship with God, and that leads to physical death. You know, you can't argue with the statistics. One out of every one person dies, right? And that leads to eternal death if this problem doesn't get fixed. This is the truth about us. Jesus comes bringing truth, uncomfortable truth, devastating truth but he's full of truth and grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. It's getting what we don't deserve. What we don't deserve is life because we pulled pulled away from the giver of life. The penalty had to be paid, and so God in his love for us, scripture says, sends the world his son, and his son grows up leading an exemplary life and then lays his life down on the cross, taking the death you and I deserve to die, bearing the penalty for our sins and he doesn't stay dead. He comes back to life and he lives today and he's willing to offer forgiveness and new life to everyone who will surrender to him. Have you ever surrendered to Christ? You know, new life that begins the moment you choose to surrender to him, a life that begins on the inside and continues on into eternity. Jesus, full of grace and truth, fully savior. But now, let let me point out that Jesus couldn't possibly serve as our Savior unless he's fully God and fully man. Let me say that again. Jesus couldn't possibly serve as our Savior unless he's fully God and fully man. You you understand why that's the case. Do do you understand why Jesus is the world's only possible Savior? A few weeks ago, I, I went for my annual physical and while I was waiting to see the doctor, his assistant gathered all these vital statistics, my height and weight and what medications I'm on and my pulse and my uh, blood pressure and so on. And uh, just before she left the room, she discovered I was a pastor. And she said, oh, my son just started going to a church. And she said, I think it's really good for him. Uh, she said, you've got to believe in something. You know, whether it's Jesus or some other higher power doesn't really matter as long as you believe in something. And then she closed up her, her uh, pad or tablet and she said the doctor will be in a moment. And she walked out of the room and for the next five minutes I was thinking of all the things I could have should have said. You ever have that happen to you? You know, you end a conversation and like five minutes later you come up with these great responses. And here's what I wish I had said. And maybe she'll come to one of our Christmas Eve services and she'll hear this, right? But what I wish I had said is this, no. No, any higher power won't do. And let me tell you why. Because a Savior has got to be fully human and fully God. So why? Well, first of all, let's start on the fully human side of things. There is a penalty to be paid. Who owes the penalty? Humans do. So God's not going to pay the penalty for, you know, to God. There's got to be a human representative here. So Jesus, our Savior, becomes fully human. Not only that, as I've already said, unless he's human, he can't die. If he's only God, he can't die. And death is what it's all about, paying the penalty for our sins. It takes a Savior who's fully human, but it takes a Savior who's fully God. Why do I say that? Because the debt that's to be paid is so ginormous. If he's going to pay the penalty for, for everyone who wants forgiveness, everyone who wants a new life, everyone who's willing to surrender to him, that's a lot of people. You know, how is he going to pay that debt if he's just one person, if his life is of finite worth? You know, uh, uh, imagine this. Imagine if I offer you today, I say, you know, hey, let me know what your debt is. I take out my checkbook. I'd like to pay your personal debt. This is a hypothetical illustration, by the way, okay? I'd like to pay your debt, and I'll write a check, you know, for the car loan, for the college loan that's out there, for, you know, the credit card, for your house, you know, and and it's possible that I have enough money in my bank account to cover maybe one of you, but there's no way I could cover all of you, and there's no way. I couldn't say tonight, could I? You know, I'm just going to write a check here to pay off the national debt. You say, well, that's ridiculous. You could never do that. How can one individual pay the debt, the sin debt, of everyone who wants forgiveness in new life? That person's life would have to be of infinite worth. That person would have to be God. Jesus, fully God, fully man, which is why Jesus is the only one who can be fully Savior. By the way, if you're a Christ follower, you know, if you haven't heard this yet, you'll hear it from friends or work associates or... Uh, bud's at school, you know, well, I'm glad you got Jesus, but other people find other ways to God. You know, we've got to be ready to say, no, that's really not the case, because in order to be a Savior, you've got to be fully human and fully God. Only Jesus fills the bill. You get it? Good. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I told you the story of the prince and the pauper, the prince who becomes a pauper, and I said, Jesus, the prince of heaven, became a pauper at Bethlehem. But here's the good news. We're the paupers who get to become princes, who get to become princesses, you know, royalty. Because the Bible says, in fact, it's John who writes it just a couple of verses earlier. We've been looking at John 1, verse 14. If you go back a couple of verses to John 1, verse 12, John says, to to as many as receive Jesus, to those who believe in his name, in other words, to those who surrender to Christ, he gives the right to become children of God. You want to become a member of God's forever family. You know, it doesn't just happen. It takes a conscious deliberate decision. What are you going to do with Jesus? Will you surrender to him as the Savior and the King of your life? Let me pray with you. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing Silent Night with candles, but before we do that, let me just pray what we call around here at Christ Community Church. We call it the Surrender Prayer. You know, with a crowd this size across four campuses and people watching online, there are probably many who've never prayed the surrender prayer, never genuinely surrendered to Christ. And maybe, maybe Christmas Eve 2019 is the day for you to do just that. The surrender prayer has three really important words to it. The first word is the word sorry. You've got to be willing to come to God humbly and say, God, I'm so sorry for my sins. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. You've got to be willing to say, God, it's my pride. It's my materialism. It's my lust. It's my self-centeredness. It's my anger. It's my indifference to the, the cries of the poor. God, these sins have separated me from you. I am so sorry. You've got to come in humility. Can you come right now and tell God from your heart, in the quietness of your heart, just tell him, sorry. That's where it begins. A relationship with a holy God requires what the Bible calls repentance, turning from our sins. God, I'm sorry. The second really important word is the word thanks. Jesus, thank you for coming to earth. Thank you for laying aside the glory of heaven and becoming one of us. Thank you for becoming a human so that you could be my representative, a human dying in my place on the cross, laying down your life to pay the penalty for my sins. Thank you. Have you ever personalized that and told Jesus, thank you, I want you to be the savior of my life? Tell him thank you now. If you mean it from your heart, this is what true surrender is. And the third word is please. Jesus, please come into my life now and begin to reign, begin to rule. You are the prince of heaven. You are the son of the living God, the king of the universe. And so it's foolishness on my part to think that I could be large and in charge of my life. That's crazy. So please, 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 please become my king. Become my ruler. Become my leader. Please, in 2020, help me to get to know you. Help me to get to know your word so that I can get to know you. Would you tell Jesus, please? Sorry, thanks, please. Just pray that from your heart right now. That's the surrender prayer if you've never prayed it before. And, Lord, I pray for those of us as well who have prayed that surrender prayer, we've begun to follow Jesus, and maybe we've forgotten at times that Jesus in his humanity gets us. Maybe we've turned to others, maybe we've turned to other things in our lives, material goods, or friends, or bad habits, God, to anesthetize ourselves when we're feeling low. Instead of turning to you, who empathizes with our every experience, who understands our every temptation. May 2020 be a year in which we get to know you better. We pray in your holy name.